Super Talk Mississippi media production. Coleman Taylor Transmission, servicing Central Mississippi for over 60 years. Their ASE certified technicians offer dependable transmission services, a warranty, and record services. Call Coleman Taylor today for all your transmission needs. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to midday super talk mississippi i'm your host gerard gibbert and today i am live on location at two mississippi museums that is in advance of veteran days coming up this coming saturday rhino safe and sound both back in the super talk mississippi studios we'll be guiding you through the middle of your day with facts fodder and fine music on this friday eve <laughs> it has been quite the long and eventful week uh, thus far rhino i'll admit i'm a little uh, a little tired <laughs> shall we say but uh raring to go to uh host the show today we're at two Mississippi museums. It is a fantastic, fantastic facility. You need to come down here and take a look at it if you have not and tour the museums, the Civil Rights Museum, the Mississippi Museum of History as well. Really are incredible world-class facilities. We got a great show lined up for you today in the final segment of the hour. We've got Shane Keel, Deputy Director of the Muse- um, Museum Division of the Mississippi Department of Archives and History. At 11.05, we'll kick off Hour 2 of Middays with the Adjutant General of the Mississippi National Guard, Jansen Boyles. At 11.50, Laura Heller, Head of Manuscript and Image Collections, also with the Mississippi Department of Archives and History. At 12.05, a Representative Fred Shanks kicks off the afternoon portion of the program. He, of course, represents District 60, which incorporates nearby Rankin County. And then we'll wind up the day down here from two Mississippi museums with Michael Morris, the director of two Mississippi museums. You may hear some sound in the background, and that is, uh, I believe, our National Guard uh, band will be playing music for some ceremonies today honoring our veterans. I can see that uh, the chairs set up outside on the uh, the area leading into the entrance, the concrete area there, the pad leading into the entrance of two Mississippi museums. I've seen some tours already, Rhino, of students of various ages that are being uh, guided by their teachers, instructors, and chaperones to to take in the museums, that, that's always good. We want them to learn about Mississippi's history, uh, both the good and the bad. But let's always wrap that up 
with recognition of just how much dang progress we have made here in the great state of Mississippi and uh, how much of what, honestly, you see in the Civil Rights Museum, though we need to take note of it, we need to understand it, we need to appreciate it, we need to recognize it, that we really have come a long, dead gum way. And I'm proud of that, and all Mississippians should be proud of that. But more importantly, I think it's, I think it's critical that the nation understand uh, just how far Mississippi has come in that regard. Now, does that mean that we don't continue to have problems? Of course we do, because we're flawed humans, just like every other state, every other nation on the planet. But my state of Mississippi, I would submit, has made perhaps more progress in the in the trailing decades in uh, on this issue, on the issue of civil rights, than any other. Uh, I see more more harmony among our people, uh, a diverse, vibrant population, honestly, than I do in the other states that I visited in my lengthy business career. And I'm proud of that. But we are here looking forward to a big day. I tell you what they had last night, Rhino, was a crazy debate. Uh, the Republican candidates took the stage. You You showed me some photos after the show yesterday. Uh, the venue down there in Miami, Florida. What was the name of that that particular venue? What an impressive Arch. facility! Yeah, and um, you kind of likened it to Carnegie Hall. Yeah, not quite that fancy with with that level yeah. of baroque detailing, but it is a very very nice amphitheater. Yeah, and uh, looked like it'd be a fantastic place for the performing arts, such as music or plays and the like. Uh, I suspect that, like Carnegie Hall, the the acoustics in the environment are purpose-built and a second to none on the planet for that purpose. Right, exactly. Just a, so, just a theater. <laughs> okay. Uh, on the ceasefire text line already, who do you think won the debate? You know, who won a debate is is, uh, is a subjective question, of course. But most of the pundits are saying that Nikki Haley, former ambassador, former governor of the great state of South Carolina, sort of took the debate. Lots of opinion has been written thus far. I've, I've taken in a few articles since. And the New York Times says she certainly beat all the boys, <laughs> winners and losers of the third GOP debate. They gave her a 6.8 out of a score of 10. And many of the pundits have weighed in saying that she was impressive and seemed to have command of the issues and, and just kind of bested the other candidates on the debate. Who we have, let's see, Ron DeSantis, Vivek Ramaswamy, Tim Scott, and Chris Christie. And so what uh, the New York Times has a fairly interesting graphic that shows kind of how they, and, and that's really they from input from a, a uh, kind of a diverse spectrum of writers and political pundits, they ranked after the first debate, the candidates, and then after the second, and then after the third, and and they've got some lines, if you can imagine, moving left to right, first debate, second debate, third debate, lines that show the uh, the ranking and connecting the ranking. Did they go up? Did they go down? Did they stay the same? 
And they honestly believe that Nikki Haley won the first, the second, and the third. So the line uh, connecting uh, her image is, is straight across uh, from the first to the second to the third and uh, has her at the top. They had Mike Pence going going from second after the first debate to last after the second, and then he dropped out. They showed Chris Christie in third consistently, the first debate, the second debate, the third debate. So at the end of the third debate, here's the way they ranked it. Nikki Haley first, Ron DeSantis second, Chris Christie third, Tim Scott fourth, and Vivek Ramaswamy fifth. I'll say that, though, on this program... When uh, Mr. Ramaswamy announced his uh, candidacy, I was uh, excited. I was um, uh, very encouraged by him entering the race. And, and that's mainly because on his policy stances, I just thought he made a lot of sense. Just common sense. Common sense communication and branding. Since then, his stock has, has uh, declined considerably with me. I think he's showing his, honestly, his political lack of political experience, and some degree of immaturity on the stage. And there was a bit of a dust-up, little verbal exchange between uh, Mr. Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley. And he kind of started it by talking about TikTok. And she um, jumped on him for the use of TikTok, which she believes should be banned in the United States and, and is um, not in our country's best interest, believes that China is is gaining lots of lots of valuable information from our society. And she has concerns, and she's expressed those. And so Ramaswamy, folks, if you didn't see it, he said, well, while she's attacking me on this issue, she should be concerned, and I'm paraphrasing a bit, concerned about her own family. Her daughter is a user of TikTok. Well, she immediately lashed back out at him and said, you know, leave your voice. I think she said, leave my daughter out of your voice is the way um, she termed it. And I agree. I, I just think I do really do believe family should be off limits in um, these sorts of uh, in, in the political world, in the political realm realm in general i believe that's the case now you may say well then why are we attacking hunter biden with respect to joe biden because joe biden was in cahoots with hunter biden Uh, there's just overwhelming evidence now it seems to be more and more released every day where he was involved honestly and um in in committing wrongdoing uh, side by side with his son, the so-called big guy, and there's all sorts of information that has uh, been revealed in the last few days showing that Joe Biden did, in fact, benefit financially from some just magical payments that showed up in the accounts of, of these just number of companies that he's involved in. So that's why. That's worthy at least of investigation. That's a little different than just taking personal shots the way. So I think Mr. Ramaswamy did not do himself any favors last night, and I think you're likely to see him leave. We're stepping aside the, the, uh, the, the election, the race, that is. Stepping aside for a break right here. We're down at two Mississippi museums. Coming right back. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's go.
Welcome back, everyone. We are at two Mississippi museums today, downtown Jackson, Mississippi. Come by and see us if you're in the area, and be sure you take in these fabulous museums right in our midst in downtown Jackson, our capital city, not too far, as a matter of fact, from the state capital. Uh, we're here because Veterans Day approaches this coming Saturday, so we're seeing ceremonies take place here at two Mississippi museums. That's what that's all about, recognizing those who served in our country's uniform. We are, of course, grateful for their service. That is the reason we enjoy the freedom and the bounty here in the great United States. So one of the ugliest moments of the night we were just talking about in the debate last night occurred when Mr. Ramaswamy and Miss Haley sort of clashed, and it was all about TikTok, a social media app, of course. You guys know what that is. And it was all about that. And when uh, Mr. Ramaswamy jumped on uh, Ambassador Haley because her daughter, who, by the way, is 25, <laughs> is using TikTok, and that's he was just trying to, I, I guess, uh, project that there was a bit of uh, hypocrisy because Ambassador Haley has been clear, expressing her concerns about Americans using the very popular social media app, TikTok, a product of of China. And it is believed that China is collecting information from American users and all users, honestly, and seeks to use it to harm our country. So, of course, that's a, a valid concern. But Ramaswamy says, well, your daughter uses it. She, by the way, not only said that you should leave my daughter out of your voice, but you could catch. Um, it was rather low in volume, but nonetheless, you could certainly hear her say, you're scum. <laughs> she called him scum. Wow. And then, and what he said was, you might want to take care of your family first. The exact exchange was, you might want to take care of your family first. She said, leave my daughter out of your voice. And then she said, you're just scum, as promised Swami kept speaking. And one of the things that I think hurts uh, Vivek Ramaswamy is that he does have a tendency to just blurt out and talk over the others. He's done that in every debate. And I think that's hurting him. And I think it's it's demonstrating his lack of experience. I don't think that voters, most of all, what you're trying to do here is impress voters and get them to pull the lever for you. I think that hurts your cause when you seem to kind of just bully yourself during the debate um, and talk over others. Um, and Isn't then, it a perfect yeah. example, though, of politicians being a bit reactionary because they saw how in 2016 it worked so well for Donald Trump to, to kind of be the bully on the stage, to, to, to be the everyman, hurling nicknames and insults at whoever crossed his path. So you see politicians and their advisors going, well, how can we do that? How can we get yeah. a part of that action? You may be right, Rhino, in that uh, that was a, a uh, an effective strategy for Donald Trump, but it almost seems to be a, a little bit more expected as part of his his profile and his personality. 
I honestly think that that there may be something that uh, that you could say for just his age, that that his, his age relative to Ramaswamy. You're a young guy trying to act like this kind of um, sort of overpowering bully on the stage, and that maybe doesn't sell as well when you've got a little bit more age on you, and and you're also I think in this case attacking candidates. In the case of Trump, you're attacking candidates that just sort of projected. Is well, you're just more of the same, and the, and the voters, I think, were so so desperate and so yearning for a, a just a change, and and he represented that change, and he represented disruption of the status quo, and I think that that uh, Ramaswamy honestly doesn't project that way, he doesn't come across that way. He really does come across as just being rude more than anything else. He then referred to. He, he referred um, to uh, Nikki Haley as Dick Cheney in three-inch heels. And she responded by saying, well, my heels are five-inch, and I only wear them if I can run in them. <laughs> so, I mean, this is what the debate devolved into. Didn't he include which, DeSantis uh, in that? I don't, I don't know. Because that's been a talking respect. point, too, about DeSantis wearing heels in his boots. <laughs> <laughs> to make him to look a little taller. Is hide up, yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe so. I haven't. I didn't hear that last night, but but I think that was kind of the the, the focal point takeaway from the debate was just uh, that little art altercation, exchanging pleasantries, <laughs> which were anything but on the stage there. And and how I think that Haley kind of shined was she does have incredible knowledge of foreign affairs and right now that is something that's weighing heavy on the minds of american voters when you see the hot spots in the world what's going on in ukraine what's going on in gaza and and uh, she seems to be reasonable about that she made some uh, comment i believe about him uh, with respect to uh, talking about ramaswamy him uh, taiwan uh, he's okay uh, as long as we get all the chips we need from them and we convert all the chip manufacturing to the U.S., then it's just hands off of Taiwan. Now, um, it, you know, a lot of libertarians, you know, in this country, Rhino, that they, they believe we should have more of an isolationist strategy and policy, and they're not in favor of, of sticking our nose in any of these foreign events. Um, and, and so Ramaswamy may be a popular candidate in that regard to them nikki haley um is is more of a hawk in those matters i mean she believes that america ought to intervene um i think Ron DeSantis, it's it's fair to say is uh of that view as well and i i've heard them both say and i heard haley say this morning in an interview what we should do is go on the offense and attack um, the terrorists and and their assets and take out their infrastructure and their ability to conduct these acts of terror on our allies such as Israel and they've made it clear that we're on their list too. Uh, she's right about that. The question is, you know, can we do that uh, with with minimal uh, harm to civilians and is that consistent with American policy? offensive policy now you can think back to uh, ronald reagan remember the bombing raids um I, i'm trying to think of who the enemy was was that um oh gosh who was that rhino they're just surprise attacks in the middle of the night the u.s air force bombers enter and start bombing to basically 
was it Idi Amin Dada? I can't, I can't remember who it was, but it was it was some, one of these bad guys that uh, w- was was pledging and uh, bloviating about uh, attacking America and taking us out. It is true that what we've seen happen in Gaza, there have been, she said, over a hundred different incidents um, done at the hands, done by Hamas terrorists against American soldiers. I don't know in, in, in American military personnel I don't, in, in assets. I don't know if that included any civilians as well. But, uh, you know, she she's pretty much um, of the opinion that we should be on the offense. Let's just put it that way. But that seems to be kind of popular among uh, a lot of people who think that we, we should take a more offensive posture. On the ceasefire text line, um, before I get to that, this is about Social Security. It's kind of a long text. I will say that nearby, and this is what made me think of it, Donald Trump was holding a rally in Florida. He seems to be more popular uh, in Florida, according to polls. Yeah, so people are reminding me. The, the bombing that Ronald Reagan ordered, it was Libya. Thank you. I couldn't remember the country. It's been so long ago. And it was Omar Gaddafi. I was close. That's right. I can still see the image uh, of him in his military uniform. But he was out sort of brandishing. Is it Omar um, or Muammar? Muammar. Muammar. That's right. I, and I think sometimes he would be referred to as Omar for short. I'm not totally sure about that but i kind of remember that libya thank you appreciate that which is the country in the northern situated northern africa isn't that right right now i think that's where it is yes and yeah and so uh, i just remember that there was a bombing raid it was kind of surprised and uh ronald reagan uh at that point i know in a lot of circles uh kind of earned the the nickname the moniker R- ronald reagan <laughs> Is what they were calling him. And he felt necessary. Look, this is a threat, and I guess he had sufficient intelligence from his advisors. We better take them out before they do something bad and we can't get to it. And so he, he uh, they, they thought it was credible enough, and they ordered bombing raids. And that pretty much ended, as I recall, any threat from uh, Gaddafi. William and Brandon said that was Operation El Dorado Cannon. How about that? Canyon, canyon, pardon me. Uh, so when we come back, um, I'm going to talk about something that Mr. Trump said yesterday with respect to Social Security. And also, my PERS article published yesterday, thanks uh, to J.T. Mitchell, our news director at Super Talk Mississippi Media. It is on the Super Talk Mississippi Media website, supertalk.fm, the URL. It's kind of a lengthy article. I, I hope you'll take a look at it, and it uh, provides an overview of what's going on with PERS there. Coming right back in the Element Well studio at Two Mississippi Museums. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on Super Talk Mississippi.
little tardy getting back to you because we were standing at attention for the national anthem being played here at two Mississippi museums. The military band playing that for us. Everyone standing at attention. We'll pause for a second for an invocation. So we are back. We appreciate you joining us today. Once again, we're at two Mississippi museums, downtown Jackson, the Veterans Day ceremonies in advance of Veteran Day, Veterans Day that is coming up on this coming Saturday. That would be November the 11th. So uh, what we were saying before we went to break was that Donald Trump was conducting a rather large rally just a few miles away from where the debate was being conducted last night in Miami, Florida. And uh, he seems to be, according to polls, more popular than even Governor Ron DeSantis is in the Sunshine State of Florida. Um, He said something last night about Social Security. And this is going to continue to be a topic that is going to get a little bit of attention, though it got none in the debate last night. None. I didn't hear a question about it whatsoever. And it's just mind-boggling to me that this doesn't come up. It's kind of like PERS in the state of Mississippi. Uh, This is a humongous problem that nobody's talking about. It is not going to fix itself. Social Security and Medicare are not going to just magically turn around and correct themselves. Something radical is going to have to happen. No way are we going to resolve the financial challenges that are facing Social Security, Medicare at the federal level, PERS at the state level. They are not just going to straighten out on their own. So Mr. Trump last night says that Governor Ron DeSanctimonious wants to end your Social Security and Medicare. That's what he said. And Mr. Trump's wrong i got to call him out on that. What Ron DeSantis has said, regardless of what you think about him on other matters politically, but what he said is right. we got to do something. And what Donald Trump says, nope, we're not going to touch it. We are always going to protect your Social Security and Medicare. Well, I agree, Mr. Trump. We do need to protect those programs because a, a commitment has been made with workers in this country who have been paying into it who expect to receive benefits out of it when they get to that point. But what's your plan, sir? You've offered no plan. You just said we're not going to touch it. Not touching it is how we we got it to where it is today. Today, those programs combined unfunded liabilities up to now $95 trillion. $95 trillion. In 2028, Medicare Part A... That's the uh, that's the component of the program that uh, pays for for hospital stays, hospital services. It is already said we cannot pay the bills in 2028. We don't have enough money. Don't have enough money coming in. Don't have enough money in the trust fund to just pay hospitals providers for medical services they deliver 
to patients covered by Medicare. 28. That's in the next presidential cycle. What are we going to do? Nobody said anything. It doesn't get any attention. It's almost at the point where what I feel like is needed, uh, both at the federal level and the state level, to address these the unpleasant problems are people who are willing to make the difficult decisions that are incredibly unpopular because it's in the best interest of all stakeholders and accept that long-term, this is the best thing to do. Short-term, I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to get my picture taken off the wall. I will not get reelected. I'm okay with that. I did my duty, and I'm going home. Because if you're focused on the next election cycle, there's really no popular policy that's going to get you reelected to address these issues, in my view. Most folks just don't want to hear that we're all going to have to take some hits and endure some pain here. I get it. Nobody wants to hear that. Um, but, you know, I think about just running a business and how critical it is to, to, to focus on the difficult, thorny, unpleasant, uh, most, um, most challenging matters. Put those at the top of the list. Address those. Take care of those. You sort of have to take care of those and address those before you, you earn the right to deal with the, the more pleasant matters. It's kind of a rite of passage, so to speak. I, I just wish that we would get um, you know more talk about it, more serious. Okay, so Christy and Haley, I have seen them say this before. It's on the ceasefire talked about uh, ceasefire text line. They have talked about the need for reform, Social Security, but mainly just raising the retirement age for new folks entering in, and that's not sufficient. It's not even remotely close to being sufficient, but it is something, um, and that that's it's easy politically easy to say because um, that's sort of protecting. I guess you could say that you're not crossing the line and um, uh, the line of protection of Social Security. You're just increasing the age in which you're eligible for benefits. So that's certainly a start, but it's not nearly enough. Not nearly enough. Thomas and Greenwood says, ending it like I've been advocating for Thomas. It's not going to end. You, you, you guys are in dream world, man. You're in dream world if you think that we're just going to magically end PERS, which is what you want to do magically in Social Security and Medicare, it ain't ever going to happen. So what we need to be focused on, the practical, logical, and effective approach, meaningful action, is to let's manage what we have. Let's let's manage around the inevitable. It is inevitable. These programs aren't going to be killed. Inevitable. If you, Thomas and Greenwood, ran on a platform of saying, I'm ending Social Security and Medicare, I'm ending PERS, I don't know that you'd get a vote. You may get a few, but but you won't make a dent in the election. That's not policy that's going to uh, to really move the needle. He says, so let's keep applying Band-Aids instead of actually fixing the problem. No, nobody's saying anything about applying Band-Aids. I'm, I'm a proponent of, of long-term reform, meaningful, substantial reform. By the way, folks, I hope you'll read the article that uh, that I wrote on PERS. 
It is at the Super Talk Mississippi website, supertalk.fm, the URL, as we said earlier. And the title of the article is PERS is the Elephant in the Room. And I do believe that because we, again, don't seem to be willing to really have a, a serious discussion about the PERS problem. And uh, in this article, at least it's documented, and I hope folks will read it, I go through how we got here, what the program's all about, how we got here, um, what the options are to uh, stabilize the program, and what's kind of likely to happen. But no matter what, it's going to cost a bunch of money. And I know that, I, I, I know that um, in, in that respect, that's not going to be popular. On the ceasefire text line, for you to say it hasn't been touched is the reason why it's not completely true. Part of the problem, they have used funds for Social Security for other things. Randy, totally 100% inaccurate, false. That is a falsehood that I've debunked a million times on this program, Randy. Absolutely untrue. Totally 100% untrue. By law, the Social Security Administration is required to loan excess surpluses that it incurs um, in a year to the Treasury. The Treasury pays interest on uh, those proceeds to Social Security Administration. That's how it earns money. In fact, by law, it's the only way its assets can produce a return is by loaning it to the United States. And the Treasury... Every single day redeems those bonds just like it does the trillions of dollars of treasury bills, treasury bonds, bills, and notes held by mostly by um, investors in the United States, to some degree by foreign investors. Every single dime that has ever been loaned by the Social Security Administration to the United States Treasury has been redeemed on time in accordance with the maturity of those bonds. Every single penny of interest has been paid on time. Should there ever be a default, the entire global economy would collapse because that would indicate that the United States cannot meet its obligations, contractual obligations. That is just not false. Now let's talk about the facts, not the fallacy. We're coming right back with more in the Element Well studio. When we return, it's Shane Kyle, the Deputy Director of the Mississippi the Museum Division, Mississippi Department of Archives and History. Stay with us. Are we going to do this? Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk, Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's middays. We are down at two Mississippi museums today. Veterans Day coming up in just a couple of days. This coming Saturday, November the 11th, Veterans Day. That's when we honor those who have worn the country's uniform. We're down at two Mississippi museums today for the Veterans Day celebration. And we welcome to the program now Shane Kyle, the Deputy Director of the Museum Division of the Mississippi Department of Archives and History. Shane, thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you, sir. Great to be here. Thank you for having me, sir. Well, we always brag about these fantastic facilities, two Mississippi museums, uh, 
the Mississippi Museum of History, of course, and then the Civil Rights Museum. They are world-class, without a doubt. Yes, sir. And uh, we're seeing lots of, just right in our midst here, lots of students that are taking tours of the museum. It's, it's good to see because... There's so much to see. There's so much information, and yes. in, in what a chronicle it is of the rich history of the state of Mississippi, and it's just good to have that uh, preserved and curated here. Tell us exactly what you do in, in your role. So uh, I'll be honest. I have one of the best jobs here with the Department of Archives and History. Uh, I get to serve as the deputy director here for the museum division, um, and, and that's a, a big way to say that I get to be involved in a lot of the great projects uh, and, and programming here, both at the two museums uh, and all. Our, our sites uh, across the great state of Mississippi. So, uh, and in particular, I get to oversee uh, a lot of our large uh, capital and site improvement projects. So, uh, we currently have nine different sites uh, across the state, and a number of those sites have um, different improvements, uh, large projects that are underway to improve accessibility and interpretation, um, and generally improve uh, what we can what we can offer and educate uh, uh, to Mississippians about their history. So, yeah. Any, any new projects on the boards, new exhibits? Uh, do you find, like, new history, perhaps? Do you run across that you didn't know about before when the museums were built? And I know you're continuously uh, updating and improved. Do you, do you just happen upon stuff randomly? How does that work? We do. Uh, and, and sometimes it's things that we've known about, um, and we just haven't quite had the opportunity or the or the resources uh, yet to go and sort of uh, flush those stories out. Uh, I think one uh, large project in part- of particular note um, um, especially, uh, I think, important uh, to talk about on a day like today, Veterans Day, when we remember the service of Mississippians who've answered the call. Um, here at the two Mississippi museums, obviously, we, we, we tell uh, the story of Mississippi history, and we do uh, much of that through stories of our veterans and the objects that they've donated uh, to the museums uh, so people can come here and learn about, uh, you know, the military history of Mississippi uh, and the service of Mississippians and all the different branches, uh, especially upstairs in the History Museum and our Sense of Duty Gallery. Uh, and much of that history goes back even before the Civil War, uh, War of 1812, militia service, obviously Civil War uh, history here in Mississippi, and then through uh, through the present-day conflicts. Um, but a particular note, um, the department is currently uh, in the early stages of a project in the Vicksburg area, and this is to uh, develop and construct a new interpretive center there that will focus on the Vicksburg campaign. Mm-hmm. And much of what is known and written about Vicksburg um, in the in the uh, in the historiography kind of always revolves around, um, you know, it's important. Importance as a this last bastion on the on the Mississippi River, um, the Gibraltar of the West. This this heavily fortified city that once it uh, once it uh, falls to U.S. Grant's uh, Union forces, uh, the the river is then open again for commerce, and it's a great victory for the North. And um, but Vicksburg also has a, a, a much larger importance um, in in the Civil War, and, and much of that has to do with uh, you know its uh, its use after the siege uh, in late 1863 through the end of the war, so almost additional two years as a as a as a base and fortification there for Union forces, uh, but also importantly, it served as a center for recruitment for uh, black Mississippians to come into the Union Army. Uh, one of the things that this new center will uh, focus on is this larger uh, Vicksburg campaign and the operations in and around Vicksburg, but also bringing to light those stories of the United States colored troops uh, and African Americans that were recruited, nearly 18,000 uh, that served in the Union Army uh, and, helped, and helped advance the cause of their, uh, you know, fighting for their own freedom and advancing the cause of liberty for others. So. Yeah. Awesome. Like I said, such rich history, and, and it's so good that it is preserved in these museums and, and available for everyone to take in and learn so much. So I know you have constant tours of, uh, of school children. 
come through I yes, mean, throughout the year, right? We do. Uh, we're open uh, year-round, um, and a good portion of our visitation, uh, many many thousands of school children from around Mississippi can come here, and we have numerous uh, ways to assist them in, in getting uh, getting buses and, and tours here. So we have a great education department, great, uh, great front-line staff and tour staff here at the two museums. Uh, and as you can see from some of the noise uh, in the background and the students around us, we've had we've had hundreds of students here today, this morning, who are coming from around the state to come and uh, uh, come and learn about Mississippi's history. So, and of course, uh, the museums are well known throughout the nation. In particular, I would say the Civil Rights Museum, which is not uh, very old, as a matter of fact. So we have people coming from all over the country as well. Yes, sir. Uh, both the uh, both the Civil Rights Museum and the History Museum uh, opened here at the same time in December 2017. So we're we're rapidly approaching here on our sixth anniversary. Um, and here we have a you know really the only uh, the only state funded and created uh, civil rights museum in the country that focuses on this incredibly powerful story uh, of the civil rights movement specifically in Mississippi. Uh, and so visitors can come here and they come and uh, do both museums as part of their visit, learn about civil rights history and also learn about the history of, of Mississippi uh, going back to the the first peoples uh, you know thirteen thousand years of history. Uh, so really a powerful experience and a lot to see here at the two museums. So. Very cool. Appreciate you coming. On Shane, thanks Thank you, a lot, sir. and uh, great work here at the Two Museum. Thank you. Thank you. Yep, we're coming right back with more. It's time for Fox News and Super Talk News because it's top of the hour. Stay with us. Much more on middays from two Mississippi museums. You're home for. And now, and now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen. To. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour two of middays. We are live at two Mississippi museums. We are here for Veterans Day. Ceremonies occurring right in front of us here. Uh, along uh, next to the entrance of the two Mississippi Museums complex here in downtown Jackson on this Friday Eve. Tomorrow is Friday, (laughs) the end of the week, election week, which has occurred in the Magnolia State. We're kind of on the downhill side of that pinnacle that we have been working towards for the last several weeks since, really, the primaries. Man, it's been a busy election season, but that's in the books now. I think, for the most part, the race for public service commissioner, Rhino, in the Central District, last I checked at the supertalk.fm website, where we've got complete election coverage for you, all the results, really good tools, still showed that that race had not been called. Is that what you see there between incumbent Brent Bailey, the Republican, and Democrat challenger DeKeither Stamps, former member of the House of Representatives? I believe last I checked, Mr. Stamps was in the lead, but there had been no call by the AP. Yeah, with 96% of votes counted, there's a delta of less than 3,000 votes between DeKeither Stamps leading the incumbent Brent yep. Bailey. It's about... a half of a percentage point difference there one way or the other so it it, that very well could come down to absentee ballots which will wrap up counting on the 15th because if you voted in mail-in then you had to have it 
postmarked by election day. So there still may be a handful of them making their way where they need to go. And those will all be counted, voted and counted by the 15th, and we will know at least by then. Yeah, uh, absolutely right. So that, that one's close, but I think the rest of them are decided. I don't know that there's anything else outstanding. I certainly haven't uh, heard any information concerning in any of the other races. So many of the races for legislative seats were uncontested. And so those uh, members just waltzed right back into office. Now, some of them did face some rather stiff primary challenges, but then found that they were the lone candidate in the general election or really didn't have any formidable competition. So there have been a few changes uh, in the legislature, but for the most part, I think everybody, at least who I believe sought re-election, with the exception of that, Rhino, may be Nick Bain. Right up in uh, the northeast corner of the state, he did not prevail in his uh, bid for re-election. So I think that's the only one that I can think of, as far as those who ran uh, for re-election, that will not be returning to the Capitol. I think he's the only one. Uh, but um, and then, of course, at statewide level, everyone in office returns. The, uh, the district level, we got some turnover there in public service commissioner in the northern district. Chris Brown prevails there, a former member of the House, and that is because the seat was vacated by Democratic candidate for governor who previously held that office, Brandon Presley. The national media refers to him as a utility regulator. So on the ceasefire's text line, we're told that Kelvin Butler also lost. Okay, we'll check that out. Thanks for that. Um, and then, let's see, in the, in the south, in the central district, Willie Simmons, our transportation commissioner, he was reelected. Again, the race too close to call at this point for public service commissioner. And then we've got uh, some turnover right down in, uh, in the southern district. I believe Wayne Carr prevailed there for public service commissioner. He defeated the prior holder of that office, Dane Maxwell, in the primary. And then we also, do we have a change? I believe so, right, in the Transportation Commissioner office. And uh, that there was a change made there. So Charles Buxby, I believe, right, won that, that, uh, that race. Former That's member correct. of the House. Yeah, from um, the magnificent Gulf Coast area of the state of Mississippi. Okay, so Kelvin Butler, incumbent Democrat turned independent, was beat by a Democrat. Right. Okay, appreciate the information on that on the ceasefire text line. We we got Fred Shanks, a member of the Mississippi House of Representatives, is going to join us at 12.05. Laura Heller, head of manuscript and image collections for the Mississippi Department of Archives and History at 11.05. So, Shaq, Bully, and Biloxi was impressed, Rhino, with your, your playing the bumper music, Mott the Hoople. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, uh, is there a better band name than that ever, Mott the Hoople? I don't know. I have to think about it's it. It's up there. <laughs> it's got to be one of the best, right? So, 
Um, I have uh, sent some links, folks, on the ceasefire text line, <clears throat> talking about the PERS situation, which we've certainly highlighted on this program because it's one of those things that ain't going away, and it's not a fun matter to deal with. I certainly appreciate that. But I, I felt it necessary to just kind of frame the issue and, and make sure that we're we're using as input to the problem the facts and uh, conducted some research to that end in sort of filtered all that through into what I hope you guys will find is, is um, in layman terms, about PERS, a public pension fund system, a defined benefit program, something you don't see hardly at all anymore in the private sector. Those firms that had defined benefit plans um, funded those to end them for all those in the system or approaching retirement and converted to defined contribution plans. We actually explain that in the article, the difference between a benefit plan and a contribution plan. At the pub, in the public sector, virtually all, I'm not sure that there are any that aren't, all pension systems are defined uh, contribution, pardon me, benefit plans. I'm watching something that's happened in front of me. It distracted me. I apologize for that. A defined benefit plan. And all that really means is that when you retire and begin uh, receiving benefits, those continue for life until um, you, you die, until you pass away. Whereas in a defined contribution plan, those are only available to the extent you have funds in your account. So when you're tracking, for example, traditionally your 401K account, your IRA, you're looking at the money in there. When you retire and you start withdrawing benefits, when you run out, that's it. When you've withdrawn all the benefits, there are no more. Unlike Social Security, Medicare, or PERS, which is once you start receiving benefits, those continue for as long as you're on the earth. There's no limit based on the amount you you invested in those accounts. Those are paid, and and therefore they're known as as a pay as you go programs, which just means people that are working and paying into the system today are essentially paying for not their benefits, but for the benefits of those receiving um, out payments that come from the program. So. Um, uh, Thomas, what are you saying here? D- just re- he read my article. Appreciate that. So why is Delbert cheerleader for more socialism through making the state pay for college rather than those funds going to purse? So Thomas, do you do you consider public education socialism? Should should the states exit education? Just just totally eliminate public education, K through twelve, and higher ed as well. There are lots of publicly funded universities. They they uh, they derive revenue from government uh, plus tuition from students. Should we just get out of the, the the education business? Just let's go close down all the public schools. Do you realize how asinine that sounds? It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Now you would call that socialism. Others would deem that as as uh, responsible government, and that's the problem. Everybody defines the role of government. You shouldn't say everybody, but there's no consensus. There's no consensus of what the role of government should be. It's amazing to me how the, the subject of abortion has been elevated so much this, since Dobbs, of course, was overturned. It's always been a hot-button issue. But since Dobbs was overturned, many consider that 
the Democrats are certainly trying to play it out is the key issue in the 2024 elections. They're trying to make the 2024 elections all about abortion. And they're probably wise to do so just given the results this past Tuesday in Virginia, in New Jersey, the ballot initiative in Ohio, which is now a state that has enshrined the right to abortion in its constitution, which is crazy to me. But it is a, it's a message to the GOP that they better get their act together on this issue. And most of the pundits who felt like Nikki Haley won the night in the debate last night, that was uh, much the result of their belief that her message on abortion made the most sense and was the most uh, re- resonant and, and uh, would do the best in the, in the ballot box. We're coming right back with more here on Middays. We're at two Mississippi museums. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. What? What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. We are back. It's middays. The sun is peeking out through the clouds. It's a bit still warm today, Rhino, but I believe we got a front coming through, going to hopefully generate a little rain across the Magnolia State. We need it. It's been uh, awfully dry. We're in the midst of a drought, and then it's going to cool off a bit. Isn't that right? Isn't that what the forecast calls for? Yeah, the front brings a little bit cooler temps and about a 50-50 chance of the wet stuff starting tonight and going all the way through early next week for some parts of the Magnolia State. Wow. Okay. Well, we need it. Uh, Just not sure at this point what that's going to look like. I don't think we'll see any downpours and and torrents of rain, but we sure could use a soaking because everything is dry. Rhett in Ridgeland says public school has to be chalked up to a benefit for the nation, educating those who would otherwise miss out results in several positives, skilled workforce, entrepreneurial spirit, and an overall better way of life. One caveat is that I believe the federal government of education is bloated and given too much control over what happens in the individual states. So I appreciate that, Rhett. So I guess maybe I should explain where I was trying to go with this is, the the term socialism gets invoked a lot by those of us on the right, but I don't know that there's a consensus of exactly what socialism is. There's not a consensus of what liberal is. There's not a consensus of what conservative is. I'm not even sure there's a majority that would come down on the side of any definition. And this all stems from, I believe, something that we've shared many times on the program. We can't agree on how many genders there are. We can't agree on what's good and what's evil anymore. All you got to do is look at at the anti-Semitic uh, prote- uh, protests that are occurring throughout the country. You may have seen some of the testimony up on the Hill um, yesterday, the day before, on anti-Semitism on college campuses. A a, a lovely 
African-American female testified, and she told the Congress, uh, those at the hearing, that uh, she holds conservative views, and she comes down on the side of Israel, and she said that she's in some big chat group, I think, on campus that has some 800 members, and that members were uh, were doxing her. And what else she say, Rhino, that she's been called a Nazi and called, a, a, even though she's a black female, a, a, black, a white supremacist, I think, not knowing her, her actual race, and that she's just wicked and evil and hateful and they fear that she may harm them. I mean, it's just unbelievable, the pejoratives and the insults and, honestly, the threats that they've levied against her and the way they've described her. And she got emotional during her testimony. I just find this despicable that sad that this is happening in this country, just the way hate has, is being spewed and uh, how it's taken hold in so many uh, enclaves in our country. And I, I personally believe that stems from what they're hearing from our political leaders, that they describe those as conservative, as just hateful and wicked and uncaring and and uh, and bigoted and racist, and they just hear it over and over and over again. So um, it doesn't really matter anymore, it seems. What it's what happens actual... when you insulate a sector of society from any consequence of their actions or their stupidity based solely on how many check boxes they can check off on the intersectionality worksheet. Just complete identity politics. And for a young college student to be in school where you're supposed to be learning and preparing for life after your education, to produce for society, to contribute, and hopefully realize the American dream. That's what we want everyone to aspire and ultimately realize. But while you're in college, trying to focus on your studies and and hopefully making good grades and learning and being exposed to knowledge and being curious, you're dealing with people who are threatening harm to you just because of your your philosophy, your just your views, your worldview. That's just not right. And and I will say that I, I don't want to see any on the conservative side of the ledger of, of the ledger uh, levy any kind of threats or hurl any sort of insults at those who don't uh, align with their political or their philosophical views. That That's just not the way it should work. It should be an environment where we all express our views. They're all done in, in a respectful way, where the debate is civil and, and respectful, and there's no should be no fear of harm. And this is ridiculous. And to, and to see um, her talk about how in this group they're doxing her, basically trying to implore people to go harm her by um, exposing her whereabouts, her residence, and just other things about her personal life. That's just wrong, totally, totally wrong. So uh, back to this whole idea of this just discussion of, of um, socialism <laughs> and, and how that's been somewhat hijacked, I think, to represent so many different things. And uh, any everything other than what it truly is in a, in a classical sense, and I think that's a problem. So, 
if you think, Thomas, that PERS is socialism and Social Security is socialism and Medicare is socialism, I, I, I got to believe that you think that everything that emanates from government is socialism. And, and, and if that's the case, then what's the harm? Well, I mean, how, how are your rights being impeded on by, by PERS? Now, notwithstanding some really poor decisions made at, in government. With respect to PERS, and I talk about this in the article, and those go back to 1998, by the way. You could argue that that politicians who want to keep their job over and over again just keep kicking the can down the road on Social Security and Medicare. I mean, they, they know at a very high level that, that uh, those programs are facing financial difficulties, and, and that's just continued to, uh, to accumulate through the years, but they've really done nothing to address the problem, no, nothing of significance to it to address the problem, and that's where we are today. Question, what is the difference between our lieutenant governor supporting free public college education and Joe Biden releasing student loans, free college, bow tip of the sip? Well, what about states? Think about this, Rhino. I know you're probably familiar with these. Um, Georgia, Texas, California. Pretty, belie- pretty sure that I recall that in those states... Uh, public higher ed is free to residents. There may be some other minor qualifications, but I believe they have those things funded through scholarships and just other programs that, that pay for those. Um, look, you, you, could, you could point to any dime that's spent uh, by the government and and you could you could call that or you could equate that to socialism or equate that to releasing student loans. And here's what I'd say to the the person who asked that question: the folks who took out these student loans did so with the understanding that they were going to pay them back. That's a key difference between someone who uh, avails themselves of a program that's created by government going into it knowing that hey the government says that. Uh, I can go to college, or I can go to K through 12 school, and it's not going to cost me anything because the taxpayers are going to fund it. That's different than when you take out a loan and you enter into a contract, and then the government, basically, as a party to that contract, changes the terms of that contract, and that costs others money. That's different, in my view, than when you just take advantage of a program. You could make the same case for doing a deduction on your tax return. And the government next year says, hey, guess what? we got a new credit that's available to you on your tax return if you want to take it. So I, I, I just don't think those are equivalent issues. I think another difference there is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe mm-hmm. Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman spoke about how the, the taxpayer funding would be used to bridge the gap between, say, a Pell Grant and the remainder of tuition. It wouldn't be That's right. full tuition, full room and board, full books and everything. It's it's bridging the gap between financial aid and tuition. That's that's right. He did he did it say that. Of course those are federal grants, Pell grants are, so one way or another um, it's being funded. So it's just a, uh, by the taxpayers. It's just a question of, you know, what what produces the best return for taxpayers? I mean, what about roads and bridges? I mean, you're paying for those as well. I pay for a lot of roads and bridges I'll never use. I mean, is that 
you know, is that sort of forcing me to pay for benefits that others are receiving? And they would say, well, I'm paying in and you're getting benefits. Heck, the blue states have already been bellyaching about that. They, they pay more taxes um, than they receive back in, in the way of, of, um, of funds from the federal government. And honestly, that powers, for example, the state of Mississippi, which, which has the, uh, the most upside-down ratio in terms of money paid to the government, federal government, versus money we get out. We, we rank last in that category. That's just because of uh, our poverty. We don't pay a lot of taxes, relatively speaking. Coming right back at two Mississippi museums. Attention, adoring fans. It's time for Middays with Gerard Gibbert. On Super Talk Mississippi. Well, I appreciate that, Rhino, and that uh, without making a request on the all-hit request line. Be good to yourself. Journey. Awesome. I believe that was from the uh, Raised on Radio LP. Is that right, Rhino? 1986? That's correct. That's what co- <laughs> cool album cover, was it not? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well... Um, William and Brandon said Shad White tweeted out uh, something concerning education, and it's it's uh, from a new study by Wallet Hub. Mississippi has one of the three worst student debt problems in the country, and I I disagree with Shad in that I don't think that has anything to do with there being kind of a uh, an overwhelming number or. Um, of, of students who major in uh, a curricula, the curriculum or curricula, the students, plural, that uh, really doesn't prepare them for jobs that are available. I don't know that that's so much the cause with respect to Mississippi's kind of outsized, disproportionate student debt problem as it is just poverty. Um, in the state of Mississippi, and just the, just the number of students that take on more debt that they can afford, and then they end up with um, lower-paying jobs because in Mississippi, our household income and our per capita income are, are 50. They're the lowest. So it's, it's kind of a toxic combination. And the way to address that problem effectively, and something the governor is laser-focused on, it's the reason I support him, is through economic growth. And we so desperately need to bolster our knowledge economy where the pay is significantly higher than it is in um, other occupations. And we have fantastic schools that prepare students for those jobs. We just don't have any jobs for them in those disciplines, in those, in those um, occupational areas. But the governor knows that, and I know there's others in state government as well that are focused on that. Our economic developers, uh, for example, and members of the legislature as well, they're keenly aware of this. But I I agree with Shad in that the answer is not to forgive that debt the way Biden wants to. 
they they chose it. They entered into a contract for that debt, and I think it. Uh, honestly, I think it's uh, it's a bad move to just forgive it. But more importantly, it, it sends the wrong message. It, it tells someone that hey, you can you can enter into a contract, and uh, you don't you don't have to honor it. That the government's just going to come to your rescue. It's it's the most egregious form of bailout, which is really what it is. Even in some situations where the students don't need a bailout, they they have sufficient income to cover it. I completely agree that higher ed is broken in that we have uh, seen the creation of just a, a large range of crazy majors and courses of study that I don't think provide anything of value. Uh, vis-a-vis landing a job and earning income and being a, a productive member of society once one graduates and earns that degree. I completely, completely appreciate that. I think tenure is a large reason for that. Um, I, I think that students aren't getting adequate, proper counseling. They maybe like something. They want to major in it. They have an interest in it. And, and that's what draws them to that as opposed to what, how, where's I got, where do I have the best chance of getting a job when I get out of here as far as what to major in? That doesn't seem to enter into the discussion as much as it should. And therefore, I say they're not getting adequate, holistic, full-scope counseling. Yeah, you can major in this. And you may have some fun doing that, but I don't know what kind of jobs you're, you're going to be able to find. Or, more importantly, there are not any jobs in this field of study. I mean, right, all this, all this gender study crap. I mean, how many different courses can you have on that? And all this intersectionality stuff you talk about all the time that, that are now just sanctioned, formal majors, courses. What the heck do you do with that? Like, what kind of job do you get once you've been through those courses? You go to work in the DEI department at a major university. <laughs> Just propagates the problem is all it does. That's about it. I mean, honestly, and the I don't know. the continues to grow. That's absolutely true. That's a good way to put it right there. So, um, I, and I, so I completely agree that we need to do some deep soul searching on that. Uh, I have been an advocate for a long time that if, as a taxpayer, I'm going to contribute to the uh, tuition uh, to educate students at the higher ed, that it ought to be in courses of study and in pursuit of degrees that offer the best chance for a job and, more importantly, are aligned with where the jobs are and will be for the long term. Of course that makes sense. I haven't figured it out yet, but I'd like to see some sort of accountability on the part of the schools. You're going to push people into these worthless majors, and you're going to get taxpayer money for it. We're going to hold you accountable for not only them paying it back if it's a loan, but there's lots of grants as well, and there's taxpayer-funded portion of tuition that's not in the form of a loan. We're going to hold you accountable by measuring the placement of your graduates. Where are they going to work? Uh, what kind of money are they earning uh, in, in, their, in their work? All that, I think, needs to be playing because the goal of a college education is to prepare one uh, for a job after college. That ought to be the goal. 
That ought to be the goal. Not just, okay, you got a degree, let's celebrate the degree. That's just starting. The learning's just starting, honestly. The work just starts when you degree, when you get a degree. That that's just a license then to go do something, if you will. Now, we should be realistic in that there are a lot of employers, you've seen it right now, they're dropping the requirement to have a college degree of any level for many, many, many jobs that historically that has been a requirement. I also do agree that um, and believe that the traditional linear degree where you study a lot of stuff um, as part of the requirements to earn that degree that aren't related to your field and your specific major but are, are considered to be important as part of an overall rounded education. I do think you're going to see those receive a lot of challenge from more specific type training and education that earns one licenses or certifications, more importantly. Lots and lots and lots of of employers are just um, looking for those that, that have these certifications more so than they are these sheepskin degrees. And I think that's changing the dynamic there, and I, I think that higher ed institutions would be wise to take note of that and start preparing and making adjustments. And I do know that there are some in those circles that are are keenly aware, and they are starting to do that. By the way, I've had lots of folks ask, where can I find the PERS article that uh, that I wrote? And, again, it's at um, supertalk.fm, the website, and you'll see it. Again, the title of the article, PERS, is The Elephant in the Room. I've shared the link with a number of folks that have asked for it. I hope you'll read it and and uh, would be curious to, to hear some feedback from you, those that, that read the article. What do you what do you think? Um, it's uh, Again, it's an opinion. It's kind of an analysis of, of uh, how we got here, what the potential options are, what's likely to happen. But something's got to happen or the thing's going to crash. It's just as simple as that. Uh, it, Louis from the 662, he, I'm just looking at it. He made a point that we just talked about. Appreciate that, Louis, talking about higher education. Why do four-year colleges require electives in order to get a degree? Yeah, I hear you, Louis, and I, and I do think that you're going to see some um, some transformation there. I really do. I think you're going to see more. Uh, and, and a lot of that's because if, if you've been watching the numbers, the enrollment in higher eds is down significantly uh, across the nation. It's expensive for one thing, and a lot of folks are saying, hey, I can get a job without that. Employers in a tight labor market are dropping those requirements, so we're starting to see a lot of people just forego college altogether, and that's going to that's gonna mean the colleges are going to have to get competitive um, in recruiting new students, and they're going to have to, I think, maybe maybe make some changes from the, the historical, traditional four-year undergraduate college degree and everything required to achieve that and maybe start looking more at focusing on these certifications and uh, and other just preparation type or courses that just prepare one more specifically uh, for uh, job opportunities. When we come back, it's Laura Heller, head of manuscript and image collections for the Mississippi Department of Archives and History. We're coming right back. We're in the Element Well studio at two Mississippi museums in downtown Jackson for Veterans Day. That's coming up this Saturday. Please don't forget to thank all those who served the nation in uniform. We are blessed indeed, and we enjoy so much because 
of their efforts and uh, their sacrifices for our nation. Coming right back, folks. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. Folks call me Maverick. Yes, I ain't too diplomatic. I just never been the kind to go along. Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays. We're live today at two Mississippi museums downtown Jackson. That's because Veterans Day is a short two days away this coming Saturday, November the 11th. We shall observe Veterans Day honoring all those who served our country in uniform. We're so grateful for their service. And we welcome to the program now Laura Heller, head of manuscript and image collections with the Mississippi Department of Archives and History. Laura, thanks for coming on. Thank you for um, asking me. Yeah, appreciate that. So uh, tell us, first of all, exactly what does that mean, head of manuscript and image collections? What does that entail? Um, The the Archives and Record Services Division of MDH uh, is composed of several sections, and the manuscript and image collection section um, preserves and makes accessible archival collections from families, from local businesses, from senators, um, their personal papers, and, and, and just a variety of collections there, including our veterans. Okay. Um, and so do you have uh, a group of people that work for you as well, an organization? Uh, oh, yes, sir. I've got uh, Archie Skiffer, uh, uh, archivist we've had since um, for about seven years now. Yeah. And then uh, Liz Kambunga is our wealthy curator. Um, and then Jeff Rogers is our graphics curator. So that's my immediate team. And then I have a wealth of volunteers, interns, um, working for me to help make these collections available. So you were telling me off the air that uh, you, you have some needs in some er- uh, yeah. a particular era, in some areas, but specifically related to a particular era. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Um, MDH collects and preserves original objects and archival materials of all types that help us tell the great story of Mississippi. And one of those areas that we're lacking in that story is from our veterans, uh, specifically from the Vietnam era, Korean War, our Desert Storm and uh, Desert Shield um, uh, groups, and then other wars that I'm not familiar with. But we definitely want to preserve those historical records. Um, it, It might include those military papers from uh, from the Air Force, the Army, the Navy, it might include the letters from those soldiers home or the letters from their family to the soldier and photographs, um, scrapbooks, newspaper clippings, just anything that tells that story of the Mississippians' experience overseas fighting in, in wars. And so do you um, 
you just try to get the message out that you're looking for these kinds of items in the hopes that, that people that might be sitting on them give you a call and oh, yeah. make yeah. them available? <laughs> they can contact me at the Department of Archives and History about discussing what a donation means and uh, how do we make those things available to people. Um, they're also available for the museum division to exhibit in future exhibits or improve our collections here. Okay. Uh, and then also we, we loan materials out to other institutions. Um, for example, the uh, Smithsonian has borrowed some things from wow. our collections. Wow. Yeah. Well, uh, I've toured both museums uh, multiple times, and they are incredibly imp- impressive. Uh, I know a lot of folks, uh, I always ask this question, because a lot of folks go to the museums that aren't from Mississippi, that it's kind of on their bucket list. They're from they're from other parts of the country, and they come through, and they're absolutely blown away, impressed with the quality mm-hmm. of the uh, the curation in, in the exhibits. Do you hear the same feedback? Yeah, I do. And part of the reason why those exhibits are so exceptional is because the materials came from Mississippians here. Uh, they're part of the artifact collections. They're part of the paper collections. And um, but prior to, to the museum's opening, uh, a number of researchers for the museums were going through the manuscript collections and the government records collections to find materials to use in the exhibits. Yeah. Is there some stuff that's not in the museums that we have stored somewhere? Do you rotate that? How does that work? That's true. That's true. Uh, That's not my area. I don't work for the museums. My uh, colleague, uh, Nan Prince and Shane Keel, uh, are are folks there to to answer those in more specific detail. But uh, they do rotate items from time to time because you want to provide the best environment for uh, those items to be exhibited. Yeah. Long-term exposure to light or heat um, okay. can cause some uh, degradation. Well, I, I would assume that's the same um, as it pertains to manuscript and image objects as well. Is that, that correct? That's true. There's some items that at this point we are switching out for reproductions. Really? Yeah, just yeah. a few of those things. Or selecting something similar in our collections to showcase. Yeah, that, that's awesome. Uh, do other states have similar agencies and organizations that sort of keep up and maintain their history as well? There are some examples, but I think Mississippi's are above and beyond the best. Really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's impressive. It's good to hear. And uh, certainly if the, the museums are any indication, it's uh, really incredible. But um, before we go, i got to ask you this. Or do we have some, um, like, artifacts stored in the Capitol? My understanding is there might be something in the basement of the Capitol in vaults or something, part of our history, documents, manuscripts. Have you ever heard that? Um, that That's not my okay. area. I don't. I think if there were anything, we would have already received it okay. over in our collection. I heard here. that from there some legislators some, is the reason I asked that question. There so. might be some things there that they rotate for display in the, in the building. But. Appreciate you coming on. <laughs> Laura Heller, head of manuscript and image collection, Mississippi Department of Archives and History. Folks, it's time for a break. We're at the top of the hour. That means the Fox News and Super Talk News. When we return, it's Representative Fred Shanks. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome 
Welcome back, everyone. Hour three of middays, the afternoon portion is with you now. We are live today at two Mississippi museums. That's because it's Veterans Day this Saturday as we recognize and express our gratitude to all of those who have wore the nation's uniform on this Friday Eve. <laughs> It is indeed. We welcome to the program here in the Element Well Studio, set up in two Mississippi museums, Representative Fred Shanks. He is the representative for District 60, which includes Rankin County. Uh, Representative Shanks, always good to see you, sir. Absolutely, Gerard. I'm glad to be back. Well, we had elections on Tuesday. I don't think there were a whole bunch of surprises. Let's talk about your race. Are you one of these people that went in uncontested? I was. I was. (laughs) That either means you're doing a great job or nobody wants your job. That's true. Probably the latter. (laughs) But it it was nice. It allowed me to, you know, help out some of my colleagues and, you know, uh, get you know, involved in some of the other races yeah. and, uh, you know, glad to, glad to do that. So. Yeah. Well, uh, I made the rounds, um, on Tuesday night visiting some of the watch parties as they call them. And in some of those races, uh, attorney general Lynn Fitch, that was called early Lieutenant governor Delbert Hoseman, uh, went to see, uh, our friend Mike Cheney, the insurance commissioner <laughs> visited him. He was at the hall of fame museum yep. in his group. And then headed over to Governor Tate Reeves' event in Flowood at the Sheraton at the Refuge. That one didn't get called by the AP until around 1130. That's right. Uh, I I was there as well, and, uh, you know, good turnout. And, you know, we could kind of see where it was going, so I think I cut out around 10 o'clock. Oh, you did? Yeah, went to the house. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, I, I ended up staying around. I wanted to talk to the governor a bit about some stuff going on on the economic development front. And he was good enough to uh, have a conversation there. And uh, I think I stayed till about 12 or okay. so. Yeah. There were still folks running around. I had to go to the Waffle House. I just say, <laughs> you know, that was, that was what was on my mind at the time. I, think I, I, I feel, feel good about it. I'm going to the Waffle House. <laughs> Uh, do they have waffles? Uh, they do. Okay, they because do. And that's I, what I had. Did I ever tell you that uh, I went to one a few years ago, and and uh, they said, by the way, we're out of waffles. I said, wait, it says Waffle House. <laughs> I'd have went home. I'd have just left. <laughs> um, you know, there was a bunch of money poured into the race at the top of the ticket for governor. It was staggering. About $20 million bucks. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it, it, it looked. Like it may have gone to a runoff at a, at a certain point, yeah. and I could not imagine how much money would have went in during a runoff. Oh man, they yeah, poured it in. Yeah, I, I was very shocked at how much money was spent total. It, it was it was mind blowing. Yeah, you know, I, I'll have to say that Mr. Presley during the campaign he didn't hold back on any given day either he or uh, the Democrat Party in general with the with the vitriol and no. the rhetoric. No, uh, blasted at our our governor. Uh, really just dressing him down every single day on every possible matter and issue you could dream up. But in his concession speech on Tuesday mm-hmm. night, I thought it was respectful. I thought it was the right tone and, and uh, c- conciliatory in that regard. And so uh, my hat's off to him yeah. on that. Yeah. You know, I, I know Brandon, and you know he's a good guy, and he, he's a great retail politician he really is he's excellent um you know he's that guy that can hop up do a stump speech kind of like yourself just hop up and 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 knock it out and and you know he did really well and yeah he he was very cordial about it and uh you know it'd be interesting to see you know where he goes where he goes now i don't think he's done I could I could get on board with that. I could yeah. see that. Yeah, um, you know, could be in the uh, administration somewhere. The yeah, Biden that's administration. That's true. It's true. But you know, think about it. He's 
He's been in politics his whole life. He's yeah. been an elected official going back to mayor of Nettleton. I think he said he was 23. That's right. right? That's right. He and I are the same age. We're okay. about 46. So, okay. yeah, he's, he's got half his life in, <laughs> invested. So I, he wakes up, and he doesn't have an office, you know, yeah. a, an elected office. And, and that, That'd um, be hard for a politician. I would think so. You know? Someone um, of, uh, of his sort that has worked his whole life yeah. in that realm. So we'll see where he lands. I do think there's a possibility he, he may get called up by president joe yeah. biden um especially with you have to admit it was a it was a strong showing uh in the race uh, it, it came down maybe about where a lot of people predicted i heard people i'm sure you did too mm-hmm. they were just guaranteeing a runoff yeah. did you hear some people oh, saying yeah. that? oh yeah absolutely guaranteeing no yeah. doubt about it going to be a runoff yeah uh heard that you know most of the little i guess text group with other politicos i'm in we're in some yeah. of the same you yeah. know we kind of all, all had it you know, pegged around, you know, 51, 52, 53. So, yeah. I mean, it kind of had it pretty squared away. And that's where, where it went. Mm-hmm. So uh, the governor, I thought, did a great job in, in his um, his speech once the election was called. And it's pretty much touted his record of success over the last four years and, and then turned his attention to the next four years and talked about what we got to do. And that, that also goes for you guys in the legislature. Uh, a lot of your colleagues will be returning there if you yeah. that uh that, that won't have elected to retire or what mm-hmm. have you but uh in, in a couple that uh just didn't make it yeah. you know, through the process but in general the big thing in your situation is a new speaker of the house uh yeah we're looking forward to it you know philip gunn is a, a good friend and has done a fantastic job and i'm a i'm a big fan i'm going to support him and whatever he chooses to do because i don't think he's done either yeah you know and uh but it is it's it's going to be a you know a different take on things you know kind of fresh blood yeah and uh Jason has a totally different leadership style, and uh, you know it's real optimistic to kind of see where things go. I think everybody's looking forward to it, and uh, you know, real excited about January. Yeah, I do too. So, uh, we were talking earlier about this article that uh, that I penned on, on PERS, and that's been published now. Supertalk FM. Lots of folks have asked for a link to it. Uh, you you know, and as do your colleagues, that this this is a problem that you guys are gonna gonna have to address. You're not you're not shying away from that. Uh, I think that'll likely get on the docket pretty early as far as business that the legislature takes up. Do you? Oh, 100 percent. I, I think it'll be it, it will be probably our biggest issue. Now we will have all the big issues coming oh, yeah. up, but that will probably be the you know. The most hotly contested, you know, everybody's emotions get involved. I mean, we're not going to certainly, we're just going to be talking about it. We're, yeah. we're not going to reinvent the wheel. And, um, you know, we actually had had some talks that it really didn't get out last session. Right. So, you know, it, when it was something, I mean, we're there for to do hard work. Yeah. And, and, and that's, you know, <clears throat> one of the things that we're going to be tackling first. And, yeah, I, I think that'll be coming right down the pipe yeah. in January. Well, I, I hope in the article I, I kind of framed the issue. That was That was my goal was just to say, look, here's here's what it is here's the program and sort of described it here's how we got here here are the options okay let's start talking about it. that's right that was the goal that's right so. and, and it, it was well laid out and you know some of the things in there that you know we have talked about and it 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 lines up and yeah. Yeah, i encourage everybody you know all everyone involved in purse to read it yeah i hope so yeah. and, and much of the information of course they were the source so yeah. i got information yeah. from from uh, dfa uh and i got information from purse as well and then they're just a a multitude of other sources and other organizations that that um, that pr- produce content 
uh, on public employees' retirement systems across the country because they're, they're all facing yeah. uh, challenges and, and economic headwinds. What else is kind of on your agenda? What What are you seeing as a priority in, in the coming session, coming term? Uh, well, by the way, on PERS, I think we'll put you on the committee. Oh, How okay. about that? Okay. <laughs> all right. But, no, I, I think, uh, you know, I think school choice will, will pop up. You know, there was a, you know, a little discussion about that last session, and then, you know, uh, in the off season, it, it's really gotten talked about quite a bit. I think that will come up. And then uh, Medicaid expansion. Yeah, uh, you know that's that's well, coming. healthcare in general. Yeah. Oh yeah, healthcare absolutely. in general is something we got to address. I want to say something about school choice. You know, I'm a huge school choice advocate and have been blessed to work with Empower on their board since the inception of the organization. Here's the way I think we got to get school choice. I'm going to say this on the air and, and for your benefit as well, Representative Shanks. I think we focus too much on the benefits of school choice and not enough on addressing the objections to school choice. And what I mean by that Mm -hmm. is we can talk to we're blue in the face to people that are either on the fence or object to school choice about how great school choice is, and it definitely is in my view, and it's the right thing to do. But we've got to to really assuage their fears to make sure they understand school choice is not about harming anything that's working. We don't want to change anything that's working in public education in the state of Mississippi. We want to address the areas where it's not without that being done at the expense. Because there's a lot of people that believe, oh, we're going to have the, the, um, the students coming from the F district nearby just going to flood the A district. That's, right. mm-hmm. that's not what this is all yeah. about. And we got to work on that. Yeah, I, you know, uh, just messaging. Yeah, I, yeah, and, and and that's one of those. You know, uh, if you're predominantly in the public education side of things, and you hear that term, it it scares you. Yeah, you know, and and you're right. I, I think it needs to be. You know, all those things need to be discussed. They more. start jumping to conclusions in their yeah. own mind about what it is, but and it's not accurate, and then they yeah. then they oppose it. And it's just hard to overcome that. So I hope we can work together to now we want to straighten the record out here yes. of what this is and what it's not, rather than them just going off on these narratives that opponents just start to put out there that aren't true. That's so, right. I mean, yeah. you, you get these organizations on, on both sides yeah. just, uh, you know, kind of picking a fight. That's right. All right. Well, we appreciate you coming in, uh, Representative Fred Shanks. We're down here at two Mississippi museums, and I'm sure we'll be seeing you around some more, Mr. Shanks. All right. Good to see you, Good to see you. Coming right back, folks. Stay with us. The Element Well Studio in downtown Jackson at two Mississippi museums. Covering the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays. The Element Well Studio relocated today to two Mississippi museums in downtown Jackson, and that's because Veterans Day is coming up this uh, Saturday, November the 11th. And uh, also, we're in the Element Well Studio. Are you thinking about or planning for retirement? Do you have a plan? Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, 
and guarantees. Hadn't checked the market in a while. Uh, what's it looking like today, Rhino? Looks like the indexes have retreated. Is that right? In the negative? Uh, they were kind of hanging around the unchanged line earlier in the day. Let's take a look. Yeah, it looks like Dow Jones is right around unchanged. NASDAQ fighting to get a percentage change. Yeah, not a whole lot, not of, a lot movement. of movement. Not a lot of movement. Yeah, I think the market's uh, kind of on the sidelines looking for some news, trying to to take a guess, a stab at what the Fed's going to do with, with respect to interest rates. We shall see. On the C Spire text line, Johnny in Tupelo says the state of Mississippi is the only thing that Republicans can be satisfied with, talking about this past Tuesday. The rest of the states, like Kentucky and Ohio, showed what the electorate thinks of Republican candidates and the lack of leadership in Washington. I told you 2024 is going to be embarrassing if we can't show some kind of positive leadership. You know, Johnny, I honestly believe, and, and so do all of the smart folks that analyze politics for a living, on both sides of the aisle that it came down to the abortion issue specifically in uh ohio uh because what happened in ohio was that a citizen initiated ballot measure was approved by voters which now enshrines the right to an abortion in the constitution up to fetal viability i did hear someone say i think it was during the debate. It could have been in one of the post-debate interviews that the measure passed in Ohio would guarantee the right to an abortion up through nine months of pregnancy. That is not true. I did research that. It's up to the point of fetal viability, which is thought to be 22 to 24 weeks. So you're, you're pretty much through the, the second trimester in that respect. And then in Virginia, the shocking results in my view governor glenn yunkin who won uh, the race for governor a couple of years ago uh, who came, came kind of out of nowhere and won on the basis of the craziness going on in the schools in virginia especially the affluent school districts where they were uh, implementing all sorts of critical race theory policy and and uh, and pedagogy and also uh, gender ideology and having all these issues with respect to boys playing girls sports and which bathroom to use and and just a series of matters related to to gender which in my view is is just stunning that we're all wrapped up about this gender stuff and and how that is 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 just been elevated to such a high profile in this country it's beyond me that that we're having an argument about that that it's even necessary to have an argument about that but he uh, appealed to the voters of virginia did governor yunkin which has very lax uh, abortion policy uh, abortion law allows abortion up to the nine month period which is just astonishing and he, he went to the voters and said look give me a a legislature a republican legislature and we'll restrict abortion to 15 weeks which seems to be where many Republican officials have gravitated to this 15-week threshold. Uh, I don't think that most people would consider that a pro-life stance. Uh, certainly if you define life as beginning at conception. Um, but 15 weeks uh, is, is felt by many to be 
the best that can be hoped for relative to uh, the positions of Democrats, such as in Virginia, which would allow it, uh, and present law actually allows through nine months. But Democrats won both houses. The Democrats only controlled the Senate prior to Election Day. It turns out that they not only retained the Senate, they won back the House. So you got total divided government and that you got Democrat-controlled legislature and Republican-controlled uh, governor's office in Virginia, which means nothing's likely to get done. And so on that basis, Republicans are, are kind of licking their wounds and regrouping and trying to figure out how to how to address the issue of abortion. Uh, the Wall Street Journal article today Abortion, actually yesterday, abortion rights supporters rack up victories, putting GOP in bind for 2024. That the headline of that particular article. And and so the candidates were explaining last night their approach to abortion during the debate. And it seems like that that Haley delivered a message consistent with prior debates that is more it seems to resonate more, I think, with the voting public than any other message. And she says, and I'm quoting, as much as I'm pro-life, I don't judge anyone for being pro-choice, and I don't want them to judge me for being pro-life. Let's find consensus. We don't need to divide America over this issue anymore. I, I, I don't think it's possible to find consensus, honestly, unless it's some sort of agreement of uh, of, a, of a threshold uh, it, uh, during pregnancy, after which abortion would be prohibited and before which it would be supported. Now, poll after poll shows that 65% or so of Americans nationwide support abortion through the 15-week period, but once you increase the gestational period, that drops off considerably. In fact, it, it, it uh, falls below 50%. So maybe that's why reading the tea leaves even evangelical Christian candidates such as Mike Pence have, um, have advocated for a 15-week federal ban. Of course, he's no longer in in the race. I think that Tim Scott, as I recall, he's for uh, an outright federal ban of all abortion, as is Speaker of the House. Certainly, historically, he's held this position. Mike Johnson, and it is thought that his uh, being elected as Speaker of the House and holding those views on abortion and wanting to ban uh, gay marriage as well at the federal level is a liability for Republicans in the 2024 election. There's no doubt that it factors in to the way voters cast their ballots. So we'll see how all that plays out for sure in the coming election. Uh, so I hear you, uh, Thomas. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, Johnny, on that, um, that Republicans did get whacked in Kentucky and Ohio, again, mainly because of, um, in Virginia, you failed to mention that one. Kentucky, it was the governor's race there, incumbent Democrat. Um, Bashir won re-election. The Republican challenger, the attorney general for the state of Kentucky, has very strong pro-life views, and the more pro-choice-oriented Democrat governor exploited that big time and that is the reason it is thought by many even in red kentucky that um uh, that the democrat 
existing Democrat incumbent governor prevailed in that race. It, it really came down. It is thought by many analysts to be their stances on abortion. You're right. This is on the ceasefire text line. You're right. Those women are going to have abortions when most will never need one, even if it means electing Biden again and we end up in World War III. <laughs> no, I don't see that. Says Lynn Fitch got that change in the Supreme Court. I'm not for abortion, but it was worth it. I hear you, and I, and I think, again, that, that the, the argument in front of the Supreme Court that this is really not in our Constitution and therefore should not be um, uh, a policy that exists or even a decision, as was Roe v. Wade, at the federal level, which essentially dictated policy in abortion practices in this country, it should be returned to the states just from a legal perspective much less the moral and ethical aspect of it. I think that was totally the right decision. But some states have have seen fit to further restrict abortion in the wake of that, such as Mississippi, where that seems to be the popular stance. But others, such as Ohio, sought to expand abortion and couldn't get it done through the legislature, so they went to the ballot using the citizen mechanism, and it and it passed. And so now that's going to be enshrined in the state's constitution in Ohio. Well, it's time for a break. As we got foreigner bumping us out of this segment, cold as ice. That's the that honestly is the tune that put them on the map back in about 1977, as I recall. Middays today is at two Mississippi museums. We are recognizing Veterans Day coming up. On Saturday, tomorrow, we're going to be at Camp Shelby at the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum. Right now, we're taking a break. Michael Morris, director of two Mississippi museums, joins us at 1250. We'll be right by. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Middays to Mississippi Museums. That's where we are today. Veterans Day coming up this Saturday. Michael Morris, director to Mississippi Museums, joins us in the next segment. Tonight, I'm going to be at the Squat and Gobble, the 43rd annual Squat and Gobble, fighting human trafficking and domestic abuse. Looking forward to that. I'll be a celebrity judge. It's going to be at the Country Club of Jackson tonight. Friends for a Cause. You can search for information about it. By using those words, friends for a cause, Tommy Turk, old friend from high school, the um, he's the creator and the oversight of this program. So, celebrity judging tonight. Looking forward to that. They literally do a little dancing and a little gobbling. Rhino is kind of fun to observe. I'm not an expert in those areas, but um, it sure is fun to to see the contestants and we. Uh, I work with the other judges, and we figure out who to give the awards to. It's a lot of fun. So and you won't be cutting cost. a rug. You'll be judging those who do. That's exactly right. <laughs> I'll be judging tonight. Looking forward to that. Um, also, let's see, Steve Azar, 
He's got his program on today and in a Mississippi Minute. You'll hear an interview with Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman as he talks about his plans on how to keep Mississippi growing and thriving. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar is presented by Superior Catfish. Remember, there's catfish, then there is Superior Catfish. It's U.S. farm-raised catfish with homegrown flavor. Ask for it by name or at your favorite store or restaurant and go to superiorcatfish.com for more info. So, um, pleased to hear so many people are interested in the PERS matter. Once again, supertalk.fm, that's where you can find the article. It is on the splash page currently, entitled, PERS is the Elephant in the Room. That's the title I thought was kind of appropriate for a matter that hasn't garnered much attention certainly in the last term but it is um it's a problem that's not going to go away on its own and it's going to require some some sort of reforms now earlier someone on the ceasefire tax line it may have been thomas said we just ought to convert the whole thing right now to a defined contribution plan as opposed to a defined benefit plan i think he actually proposed just taking all the money that's currently being uh, invested and contributed into the program from employees and employers. So we just ought to convert it to a 401k, take all the PERS money, just dump it in that, let that sit in there for their retirement. Um, of course, Thomas, you realize that means that the state of Mississippi would be breaching a contract and we'd end up in court, probably the U.S. Supreme Court, before it's all over with. And so that's just not, once again, an impractical proposal and that's the problem when you when you're so you're just so convicted to a a certain line of thinking without really considering reality and what's practical what's pragmatic what is doable what's achievable that's not that's it's um honestly it's just far-fetched it says sarah huckabee sanders would say it's crazy and it is, because that's not going to happen. And mathematically, that um, doesn't solve the problem with respect to the state's obligation. It would be breaching its obligation under its contract with employees to just say, you know what, these benefits aren't going to last for life anymore. I'm sorry, you're only going to get what's left uh, from what you and your employer contributed and the return on those monies through the years. And by the way, if you've already used all that, received all that based on your number of years of retirement, you're done. You don't get a check anymore. That's what would happen. That's not practical. Not practical. Not only that, it's got zero chance. It'd get laughed at if that were proposed. Because everybody knows it's not going to happen. Uh, let's see. And that's not uh, social issues are easy to hold on to. This is on the ceasefire tax line. And have an opinion because intelligence isn't necessary. Math, real purpose of government, in my opinion, in parentheses, takes analysis and education. That's not fun or exciting for millennials who need a shirt or a chant to live by. There is a lot of truth to that, Rhino. I think you and I have talked about that for, uh, before. It, it does require use of the noggin when you dig into some of these more meaty issues like PERS, which is a big math problem. There ain't no doubt. That's what it is. If the social issues, it's it, those are easy to comprehend, comprehend, easy to understand, 
easy to kind of come down on one side or the other of and and sort of easy and almost fun as we're seeing uh, certainly among the young population in our country just they're just looking for a cause what cause can i can i get behind and go out and be you know part of a, a cause and and you know establish sometimes friendships you're like buddy buddy let's go to the big event together and and protest israel and get on the side of hamas or some crap like that nobody really wants to deal with oh my gosh pers has uh, been amortizing its uh, shortfalls on its return on investment over too many years and that's caused the program to be upside down nobody wants to hear that that's that's not uh, exciting it's not um sizzly if you will it's not sexy unbelievable i mean just look at cause a cause b and cause c all are opposing viewpoints of a of a social issue but if you get the student body of any high school across these united states to hold a walkout for cause a b or c the kids are going to go along with it because guess that's what? right i get out of class <laughs> did i not see that this is happening in high schools in new york did you see that where there are walkout protests scheduled i believe for today and it is students who are protesting israel i believe i've seen that uh high schools now they can't read they can't write they can't do basic math but they got time to go protest a conflict over in the Middle East, a, a faraway conflict, and and they've somehow been brainwashed into protesting in support of Hamas. What what about the Jewish children in those high schools? And and by the way, there's only about what right six seven million Jews, I believe, last I checked, in the country, and most of them are concentrated in the northeast part of the are the United States, New York is is the home to many Jews in this country. So you know these high schools have got Jewish students in them. That's my point. How do they feel when they're seeing their fellow students walk out of class, an organized walkout, an organized protest, where they're protesting against essentially their faith in, in the nation associated with their faith? Because they're uninformed or they've been indoctrinated, I believe, or brainwashed by loony teachers, even at the high school level, that are encouraging them to hold this position or these positions. That's just totally wrong. Where did all the hate come from? You're just teaching hate. I don't get it. Is there is it is that part of the Marxist playbook? I know I know dividing people into these tidy little groups. Um, certainly on economic basis, the Politburo, the folks that kind of control the assets and the proletariat, the people that work to produce the assets. I mean, that's that's legacy Marxism. And, and, and I know uh, other forms of Marxism are to, to achieve the goals of Marxism. You've got to divide people into these little identity groups. And that's what I believe the Democrat Party has adopted uh, that strategy uh, quite successfully, unfortunately. Uh, this is terrible that this is, in my view, that this is happening at an American high school. Uh, unbelievable. I'd rather see them walk out in protest of the government for some purpose than I would get involved and take a side 
in, in a war like this, but are they just blind and not being informed of the horrific atrocities committed by Hamas? It, why does that not seem to enter into this discussion? As if nothing ever happened on October 7th. No, they really didn't. They didn't, didn't really attack innocent civilians, kill, rape, behead, torture innocent civilians at a music fest. No, that didn't happen. It's because you, you can't let facts get in the way of the narrative or your feelings. Oh, so it's all about feelings. Oh, yeah. I guess so. Ridiculous. Would you, if, if you have any time and we're about out of it today, we can handle it tomorrow, tackle it tomorrow, explain the governor's stance on, on Medicaid. He, he opposes expansion of, of Medicaid, and he, he doesn't think that, uh, that expansion is the correct strategy to address our, our pressing economic issues in the healthcare industry in the state. He's also expressed concern about those that are presently covered in their group plans offered by their employers if they're eligible for Medicaid based on their income. He has concerns that they would exit their employer-provided coverage and join the roles of Medicaid. He's made that very clear. Uh, I haven't seen any data to support that uh, prediction, that, that, that thought on the part of the governor. Uh, he may have some data. I just haven't seen it. Uh, I, I do share those concerns, but I think there is another creative way to handle the uninsured population in Mississippi. I'm writing an article on it right now. I hope to have it done in a couple of weeks, and I'll, I'll be sure and let you know. But the PERS article at supertalk.fm, folks, I hope you'll take a look at it, read it. Let me know what you think. Text us on the ceasefire text line. We're stepping aside for a break. The final segment is up next on Middays. we got Michael Morris, director of two Mississippi museums. We're coming right back. Middays with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. Welcome back, everyone. Middays, back with you. Final segment of the program today, the, the Element Well Studio relocated to two Mississippi museums. That's because Veterans Day is uh, upon us coming up this Saturday. We welcome to the program now Michael Morris, the director of two Mississippi museums. Michael, good to see you. It's been a good day with the uh, ceremonies today. Absolutely. Recognizing our veterans. Good love to, to see you, Gerard. Love yeah. to hear and see our, our military um Band in particular, aren't Absolutely. they good? The 41st Army Band is uh, their name, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. They're awesome. I saw Lieutenant Governor uh, Delbert Hoseman, Speaker of the House Philip Gunn, in attendance today. Yes. Uh, many other dignitaries, of course, um, uh, Adjutant General Jansen Boyles. Yes. Uh, we thought we were going to get him on the program. I think we got him coming on tomorrow okay. down there at the Armed Forces Museum. Uh, I grew up 
uh, with Durr. I've known him for a long time. Actually, yeah. I call him Durr. That's his. That's his name. He's really a great guy. He's awesome. He's isn't he? always got something impactful to say when he's yeah. speaking here. Doesn't Highly hurt. qualified. I think he does a great job yeah, as our adjutant too. general. All right. Well, give us uh, give us an update. What's going on here at the two Mississippi museums? Well, Gerard, I've been in this job for about three months now. I started that's on fun. August one. Okay. And I so, didn't think uh, you've been doing this very long. Thanks for clarifying <laughs> that. Yep. And um, you know, it's exciting. Um, I think you saw all the school groups that we've had coming through just today and um you know we're getting into the holiday season and so um we've actually got a holiday open house uh this saturday from 10 to 2 p.m here at the two mississippi museums um at our mississippi museum store and we've got a lot of special items on sale um i know that i'm going to be doing a lot of shopping getting ready for the christmas season um and why not uh do it at our museum store all of the products that you see in there are mississippi made and so uh, I'm asking the audience to come out this Saturday from 10 to 2 um, from our holiday open house. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, world-class facilities. Yes. I've toured both uh, multiple times, and I've talked to many other people who have as well. I mean, it's it's just so exceptionally done. tells the story of mm-hmm. the history of Mississippi, uh, both the positive and the negative aspects yeah. of it. Absolutely. But I, but I feel when I when I go through it and I leave, uh, I feel well. I got that walk through our history, but I'm inspired and and I'm I'm uh, I'm, I'm just feel encouraged and optimistic right. about how far we've come because it does tell that story. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Adjutant General uh, Jansen Bulls, um, you know, made yeah. some excellent comments. And our board president Spence Flaggard, yeah, 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 he mentioned two uh, individuals that are very important to our museums. Um, William Winter and uh, yeah. Meg Evers. Yeah. And he reminded us that both of those individuals served in World War II. Yeah. And both of them, in their own ways, came back home and decided to make the change that they wanted to see happen in the world. And I think that kind of motivation, that kind of inspiration is something that we want to give to all the visitors that come to these museums. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head. I, I hope people leave inspired to go out there and make the world the place that they want it to be. No doubt. And I also got to recognize... Uh, my good friend and sometimes golf partner, uh, former Supreme Court Justice Reuben Anderson. Yes, How absolutely. instrumental he was oh, in very making this thing happen. Very instrumental. Um, just a cool, calm, and collected leader. He's awesome. Um, he served for many years on our board of trustees here at the Department of Archives and History. And uh, he was very instrumental in the construction of these museums. It's all that he could talk about for about 10 years. I no think. doubt about it. I don't know that that's well known. Yeah. It's really because of him that we got this. Yes. Let's be honest about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. He, he, he was one of the folks that had the conversation with the governor at the time to decide to build these two projects together. And um, as you just said, these buildings wouldn't be here if um, there wasn't some decisions that were made about in 2011 about making these projects uh, be built together. No, I mean, it was his vision. Yes, absolutely. Uh, when we get off the air, I'm going to share with you a story about um, how he was instrumental in something related to my business. Hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. He, he'll be fascinated that. by that. But yeah. he, he is, uh, he's a treasure for the state he of Mississippi. Really and, and he's not a person that seeks to get credit, right. you know, for so much of what he's done. I just want to point that out because oh, I, I think so much of the judge and, and I respect him so much. And I'm, I'm grateful for mm-hmm. what he did for the state of Mississippi. I, I think a lot of your audience members, you know, uh, should know that he started out as a civil rights attorney with exactly the NAACP. Right. And um, what he and Judge Fred Banks did was yep. go across the state and sue school districts to try to get them to integrate. Yeah, yeah. And so we owe a lot to him. No and, doubt about uh, it. He spent his entire life trying to give back 
um, to Mississippi and yeah. make this a better place. No doubt. I'm always fascinated, uh, Michael, when I talk to folks from out of state that have toured the museums. They're, they're, they come away just honestly blown away, impressed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it can it can stoke emotions a little bit. Yeah. Uh, certainly the Civil Rights Museum yeah. can. But they come away, I hope, and I believe, and from what they tell me, uh, feeling positive about the state of Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and seeing I, that how far we've come, honestly. I, I think our museums speak to the resilience of Mississippians. Totally agree. Um, when you go through our Museum of Mississippi History and yes. you see our exhibit on Hurricane Katrina, for yes. example. Yes. And we're coming up on the 20-year anniversary in a couple Hard of years. Hard to believe. I, I remember that like it was yesterday. Hard <laughs> to right. believe. And all you got to do is tour the coast now, visit the coast now, and see, wow, how far we've come since mm-hmm. uh, 2005 when that occurred. Yeah. Michael, appreciate you coming oh, on. no problem. And, Thank you for uh, having Thanks me. for all the great work here at the two uh, museums, two Mississippi museums. Appreciate it. Thank you. Folks, we're out of time here today. We're going to be down at uh, Camp Shelby, the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum, tomorrow, another uh, celebration of Veterans Day. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.